0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthcare Provider Happy Hour. I'm your host, Jennifer George, and I'm joining you today with a special guest. His name is Dr. Joe Sherman, and Joe is a board-certified general pediatrician with over 35 years of experience practicing in the U.S., Uganda, and Bolivia. Joe is also a coach to healthcare providers to help transform their relationship with their unrelenting demands of their jobs towards a path of meaning, fulfillment, and longevity. And furthermore, he works with organizations to help improve staff retention and shift the culture to well-being and professional fulfillment. I'm so excited to chat with Joe today to pick his brain and to share his experiences with you and advice for you to continue on the path to fulfillment in your career where you're at right now. I hope you find this episode helpful. Grab your drink of choice and join us. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer.
0: Well, thanks so much for being here. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, a bit about your story?
1: Sure. I've been in practice for close to 35 years. And uh, most recently, I do work with physicians and other health professionals in coaching and retreat facilitation and workshop facilitation, mostly in the area of well-being and career fulfillment, and career discernment.
0: Okay. So for someone who's been in the practice for 35 years, to me, you are like the go-to. By simply going to your website, you really have, I feel like you're just a wealth of wisdom and experience from all areas, from the practitioner level, from the organizational level from the cultural level, just working overseas as well. I just, I want to know so much about you and (laughs) and learn from you. So can you tell me like how long have you been coaching for and how did you come into coaching?
1: Yeah, well, I would have to say I have a long history of medical practice and I have a lot of stumbles and bumbles and mistakes (laughs) and mishaps.
0: Okay, sometimes, so you do too then. Yes, <laughs>
1: That's I am normal, human, I would say. <laughs> okay. Uh, just ask my wife. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, I think I, I, I was talking to someone the other day and I said, I've never had one job longer than five years. And the reason for those changes sometimes were things that happened to me And sometimes they were things that I made happen. Mm. And sometimes I think there was uh, some coincidence or maybe divine intervention that some of the things that happened to me came along at a time when I was ready for a change. Mm. So I have worked predominantly as a general pediatrician in community settings and also training pediatric or family medicine residents that are part of a training program in a university, but I would always have one foot in the community and the community clinics and community organizations and one foot in the institution. And I loved bridging that gap between those two places. So that's been the majority of my medical career. As far as coaching is concerned, you mentioned that I had lived overseas and worked overseas. Uh, we, as a family, lived in Bolivia for four years. We were uh, part of a mission group called Mary Noel Missioners. And my wife was a clinical psychologist, and myself with our two young children, who at the time were five and three, moved to Bolivia to live for four years. And during that time, it was like everything that I had done in my adult life came together. It was a chance for me to practice medicine, but also to be a part of a community with a common mission in a cross-cultural experience. Uh, I got to play the role of counselor, pediatrician, teacher, cultural ambassador, welcoming people in uh, who are visiting from the U.S. So all of these things in a community that welcomed us as a family, was tremendously fulfilling for me. And then we returned. It was Mm -hmm. after four years. Our kids were getting a little older. We were concerned about their education. And I was frankly concerned that if I was going to be a doctor in the U.S., if I stayed away longer, I would kind of lose my, I don't know, any skills or things that uh, had changed since I had gone. So I returned and I started a job after working a few places, filling in, in some community clinics. I got a position at a university hospital and a university department in pediatrics in Seattle. And it was a very academic department, but my job was very much in a county hospital in this same cross-cultural setting that I loved. but. As soon as I came back and I was part of this academic department, I felt like the imposter, this idea of the imposter syndrome. It's like, I'm not a real researcher. I'm not a real academic doctor. The reality is I'm more like that doctor walking in the dirt roads of Bolivia. And it was also at a time after this big economic crunch in the United States. And so a lot of medical institutions had laid off a lot of workers They had cut their budgets. And I came into a clinic and became medical director with very few resources. And every time we asked for something, the answer was usually no. But being the person that I was, I thought, well, I'm going to make it right for everybody. I will try to fix this system all by myself. A little bit of ego, I think. And this desire to really make life better for everybody. As a result of this sense of being the imposter and trying to do it all, I sunk rapidly. And first, it was burnout, where I felt like I was just kind of coming in and going through the motions. And then it ultimately got to pretty bad anxiety and depression. It got to the point where I had to walk away completely from medicine. And I just stopped and came back home took care of our kids. They were about 12 and 10 at the time. And my wife, she was working as a full-time professor of psychology. And I really spent a long time going back, thinking back over Bolivia, thinking back over my whole career. And I was like, what is it that I really loved about medicine? And what was it that really burned me out? Mm -hmm. And I ran across a few books that were really helpful. One of them was called "Let Your Life Speak," written by Parker Palmer. It was all about living more authentically and bringing more of who you are to what you do. Soul to role, he would say. Love that. And and I started to think, wow, maybe I'm supposed to be a counselor. Maybe I took a wrong turn back at pre-med. Maybe I was supposed to be a teacher. Maybe I, so. I really investigated a lot of these other things, and I realized number one. There was a certain setting and a certain set of circumstances that I thrived in as a physician, as a pediatrician. So I needed to find that in order for it to be a good fit. And secondly, I was really excited about helping other doctors go through the same process without crashing and burning like I did. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I became a coach. I know it's a long story and kind of convoluted, but I became a facilitator with uh, retreats for physicians as well as an individual professional development coach for physicians.
0: No, it's not a long story at all. It's actually very full. And I just think, like you said, it's kind of a part of the wobble, right? And I, I like that you're normalizing that. And I think at the time, I don't know what year would that have been? Like you said, it was, it was just like, after the economic- came back
1: in 2009. So yeah. it was like 2009, 2010.
0: So I don't know how open the dialogue was about imposter syndrome and burnout and things of that nature. If it was there, it wasn't probably as much talked about as it is now, I would imagine. So I love the fact that you experienced imposter syndrome, right? You're comparing yourself, you felt like you were a fraud in a way. And yet, getting through all of this, you wanted to help other physicians as well. Along your journey, do you know of any other physicians who were going through what you were going through? Was it talked
1: about? Oh my gosh, I would say it was not talked about very much, this whole idea of burnout and imposter syndrome, but it was all over the literature and there were papers written about it. It has been something that's been known about, at least in medicine, since uh, the mid-90s, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I would say that as physicians have experienced burnout for a long time. And even before the pandemic was around, from surveys that have been taken every year of physicians, anywhere from around, uh, depending on the specialty, 30 to 40% of practicing physicians claim to be burned out. The latest survey since the pandemic uh, uh, has been with us now for two years, it's closer to 60% of all practicing physicians claim to be burned out on surveys. Okay. So that's pretty dramatic.
0: It's double. Yeah. So from your experience, I don't I, like I know you're a director as well. So you also have the leadership experience, too, um, that I didn't mention in the beginning. So people are taking this data, right? They're taking these surveys of, of reported burnout. And what are they doing with them? <laughs> Can someone because why do the rates keep going up? Right. Like we've been yeah. we've been taking this data in for so long, but yet the rates continue to rise.
1: Yes. I'm so glad you asked that question because one of the things that I do is consult with medical groups and organizations of physicians. And and one of the first things they would say is, I think we're going to take a survey to see if we are, if we have any burnout amongst our physicians working with us. And my first response is don't bother. It's already there. I can tell you. And especially don't bother unless you plan on doing something about it. Because if you ask a physician if they are happy in their job, they are satisfied, fulfilled, or whether they are burned out, then the first thing they're going to say is, yeah, I'm burned out. What are you going to do about it? And if you're not going to do anything about it, please don't ask me anymore. So I would say it's been known that it's there for a while. But we as physicians we're programmed since our medical training to just do what you're told, don't complain, and put the patient first. Mm -hmm. Put the patient first above yourself, above your own health, your own basic needs of sleep and going to the bathroom and eating. And we took that on because that was the way it was packaged. We had no other choice. It wasn't like, oh, you could go this route which was a more humane way of training you to be a doctor, or you could take this route, which was the boot camp way. And so that was what we've been told. That's what we've been programmed to believe. And if we were suffering, if we lack of sleep, emotional distress, one of our patients died and we didn't know what to do, how to handle our emotions, it's not like there was any mechanism for us to go to somebody, get some help get the support we needed. As a matter of fact, there was the unwritten rule, you don't complain, you don't ask for help. It shows that you're weak. It shows that you can't handle it. So that's what we've been delivered, that message. And that's been internalized for us, at least in medical training. I think nurses are a bit more humane, although nurses have taken the bigger hit during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because they've been much more on the front lines. Yeah. But I think during their training, um, maybe because the, it was predominantly women, they're much more compassionate and emotionally intelligent with people. Sorry to generalize, but <laughs> I know that uh, from myself and, 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 our, and my work that physicians just have been programmed and trained not to ask for help, never to say that you can't handle it and to get in there and pitch in with everyone else.
0: Yeah, it's like a paradigm shift essentially has to happen. It's a deep rooted internalization of our training over the years. And I think too, for a lot of healthcare providers, we tend to be perfectionistic, we tend to have our own attributes as well that maybe predispose us to it also. And I think it's having a sense of compassion for ourselves to recognize that it's not entirely our fault um, if we do go down this path, and that there is recovery, and that you know you've proved that you can get back to practice, and that you can also um, go on to even help others, which I think is amazing.
1: I'm so glad that you mentioned that self compassion because with my work with physicians, probably the first step I take is that I ask them i say you know what were you taught in medical training what were you role model to do when you were having difficulty when you were in distress and very often they would say you don't say anything you just keep going right and i said okay so there was there was the the end point of finishing residency but now that you're in practice you can't keep that up there's no way you can keep that up indefinitely And there needs to be this shift, exactly what you say, where you realize the more and better that you take care of yourself, the better doctor you're going to be for your patients. If you're burned out, you're frustrated, you're cynical, you're going to put that anger out to your patients, either passive aggressively or sometimes aggressively. Mm -hmm. And so this is where... The tables need to turn a little bit. You have to come first. It's not the patient comes first. It's you come first. And when you take care of yourself, then you bring this full, passionate, excited person to take care of your patient. And so, that comes with self-compassion.
0: Yeah. And so, Joe, what do you say to the provider who says, how do I do that? How do I put myself first? Do I, I don't have the time to put myself first. And kind of they just hold on to that argument, um, yeah, to treat themselves unwell, and we'll just like we'll talk about this at an individual level, and then I want to ask you about that at an organizational level too, if you could t- um talk about that too,
1: absolutely. I would say at an individual level, um the first thing that I do with physicians especially the ones that say, "I'm working too hard, it's overwhelming." I don't have time to take care of myself and I don't have time to, uh, to get help. I just can't fit it in. I'm too overwhelmed. And I was like, do you realize what you just said? You said that you're too overwhelmed that you can't get help for being overwhelmed. And this is the way we've been programmed. The same thing. It's like, you know, that people who, Are outside of medicine that have their jobs that they go to every day and come home and set those limits and know when work ends and when the work begins. They're not saying those types of things. So the first thing I do is just try to recognize, help people recognize that this is not your fault. This is a culture that's been imposed upon you and it doesn't work anymore. It's not going to work for you. But if you're able to stop, and realize, take a chance to breathe. And then as you breathe, look at what you're doing. What are your values? What are those core values? The reasons why you came into this profession to begin with, right? What are those? Do you really know? And I go through exercises with identifying those because usually those are not only in your work, it's also in the rest of your life. So how much are you able to live out those core values in your current position. And very often you're not able to, there are a lot of restraints. People call it moral distress or moral injury. You're not able to be the person that is consistent with your values because of external constraints. So then I say, okay, if that's true, how far away from that are you? You know, are you just so distant that it? doesn't even sound like anything that you thought that you were getting into because we want to make sure that people kind of get over this idea of self-sacrifice and that if they work harder then it's all going to get better instead it's kind of like let's invest in your health and then you can be there for your patients so we say what your core values are what's your ideal job circumstance what would you love to have where are you now What's what are the barriers getting in the way from where you are now to where you would like to be, right? What are the changes that need to be made to get to that ideal position? And I'm not talking about pie in the sky, everything perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about step by step by step, starting to make changes, starting with setting limits and realizing the value of saying no and setting limits are to your own health, And the well-being of your family, who you care desperately about. And so learning how to say no, setting limits, and slowly making those changes, if you can, with your current job, to make it more like what that ideal position would be like. And that includes a well-balanced life that means as much time as you would like to have for your own health and well-being away from work. And being able to leave work behind.
0: Wow. So, what I love what, about what you said there is it wasn't exercise mindfulness, meditation, it wasn't just these things to do. I'm all for that. Don't get me wrong. But what I love is that you really take a careful look. And um, like, within, right, we we really get into this practice from within first. And like you said, we kind of lose sight of that we sacrifice ourselves, we sacrifice our families, in a way too. And it happens like at work, I think people neglect their self-care there, but they also neglect it at home too as a result. And then you're compromising your family as well in that process.
1: And I have been there before. My right. wife has kind of said like, I can't do this anymore. So you're going to have to make a change. That's happened a couple of times. Yeah. And so I thank God for her. I mean, if if that didn't happen, I would keep thinking, let me. Keep doing the same thing over again and expect different results.
0: Right. And I think that's a sign of a supportive partner, someone who says, like, I can't do this anymore and isn't just watching you plummet and burn out completely and burn everybody out in the process.
1: And I would say, if there was ever a time, because a lot of physicians would say to me, All right, this is pie in the sky. I've talked to my friends. It's no better where they are. It, it just might as well just stay where I am and just suck it up and deal. And I'll say, Well, you can do that, and you realize that the physician suicide rate is climbing during Mm -hmm. the pandemic Mm -hmm. and that uh, it's unsustainable to continue that way. And I would say that there is some good news. I would say, I'd say that our healthcare system is either going to crash completely before all of a sudden we change. Or else people will try to wake up before it does bottom out completely. But we're at a position now, because of the great resignation during the pandemic, where it's starting with support staff, medical assistants, RNs, all of those people, they're like, I'm done, I'm gone. So it's left the physicians to be be doing even more without that support. And because we've been programmed to deal with whatever we can and keep working, we're there. But many of the older physicians, something in the United States, like 45% of the physicians are like seniors. They're over 55, 55 or older. And those of us who are that old, if we haven't left, we're going to leave soon as a result of this pandemic experience. And so physicians will start to be able to have more choices. Mm. And you can start to have more say in what your job is going to look like because healthcare organizations are going to have to finally value their staff their physicians their nurses those people who have dedicated their lives as their most valuable assets and treat them with the with the respect and the care that they need
0: i'm so glad you said that because that's kind of in alignment with what i've been thinking one of the things i said about on a recent podcast was i i do believe that this year will be the year of the healthcare provider because of exactly what you just said at some point it's either going to plummet And there's going to be nobody left. I actually had a thought um, one day just working. I was walking down the hallway. And, you know, and you're just so I'm so attuned to energy around me and, and, you know, the environment and everything. And I've always felt like I've been able to foresee things and have had good foresight that way. But I'll never forget, I was I was walking down the hall and I could hear like a family being kind of rude to a nurse and I could just hear, the, you know, it was a male voice that was pretty aggressive. And then I, I uh, to the other side of me, I could see uh, out of my peripheral a nurse talking to another nurse and having a hard time with something. And I thought, oh, my goodness, one of these days, nobody's going to show up. This isn't going to be worth it for people to show up anymore, and you know. And I just had that thought, and this was just a few months ago, and I I was thinking, like, you know, is that what's going to happen? Are we going to be down to like acute ER services now? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like you said, it's just stripping away, and I. I don't know about you, but do you, from what you're seeing compared to pre-pandemic through your coaching and whatnot, are you noticing it's mostly because of moral injury or more because of burnout, or do they both go together? Because a lot of people are also now talking about moral injury being the bigger factor for them resigning and leaving the profession.
1: I believe that some of this is terminology and semantics because I believe that, you know, moral injury is part of burnout. And people may not, you know, maybe for a physician to say I'm burned out is kind of like what I said about that sense of the physician culture. You don't say you're burned out. That means that you're you don't you're not you're weak, you're not strong enough. But if you say I'm morally injured, then you are that innocent victim in that situation. So I have to say I'm not. The person that says it's all on the institution or it's all on the individual. It's a combination of two things. So I really believe that, gosh, if you study, like the history of medical culture was such that physicians, when I was younger, I went to school in the 80s, the medical school and my residency training in the early 80s. And when we got out, physicians, boy, honored by society, paid rate income, you know the community loved you. Also, medicine was so much simpler. It was so much simpler. We had books that had everything that we needed to know, little pocketbooks and manuals. It wasn't the whole internet. So in those days, maybe it was possible and that we kind of created this world that kind of perpetuated that. And then the medical industry took over and Really took off. And we as physicians have been kind of left behind. We're still doing things the way that we used to do them. But we've been given electronic health records, we've been given inboxes, and video conferencing, and telehealth, and follow ups, and portals, and all of these different things that are now in this box in front of us that never existed before. But we haven't changed the support system and the infrastructure to help us function within that environment. It's too much coming at us all at once. We can't handle it the same way. Patients' complexity has gotten so much more. Everyone comes in with a behavioral health overlay of every illness that they have. Their families come in and they're you know part of the whole situation. This wasn't true before. And so I think we need to slow down. We need to take longer with patients. We need to see less patients in the course of the day. We need to be given specific time to actually do all of the extra work generated by seeing patients or other people to do it for us so that we can be used at our highest potential. Mm -hmm. And we as individual physicians need to take care of ourselves and take personal responsibility to change that culture within so that we can sustain ourselves moving forward
0: everything you're saying there is totally resonating with me, like 100%. Um, a lot of what you're saying there, everything that you're saying there is something I totally um, align with and believe in as well. I think we have a personal responsibility to ourselves, to our loved ones, to our to our profession, to our patients, you know, for the reason for getting into practice to begin with. And if we are employed to our organization as well, and I think like you said, um, I've always felt like as a healthcare provider, we can't blame the system. I mean, we're part of it, right? I, I've always felt like we just can't wait for the system to change before we take care of ourselves. It just, I mean, we just have no control over that. So I have compassion for for leadership. I have compassion for, for those organizational leaders, you know, for stakeholders. Like I, I get all of that. And I really, it, this is just my personal belief that Um, It's not like a top-down type of solution in a way, maybe at an organizational entity level, that it's got to be collaborative. So like you said, so if they are checking in with providers and saying, you know, how are you doing? But what, like maybe we can change that narrative and just make it more like how can we, because they're burning out too, right, in a different way. Like, I mean, how much can they take as well? So I guess I'm wondering now from an organizational standpoint what are your like what are you seeing what are your tips how can we bring it all together so we're
1: all healing through this i think that that's the key what you just said is that we're all healing and that we're all in this together yeah. i think that that's the key i think that there has been over the years this kind of us them mentality the bad guys are the administrators the good guys are the doctors mm-hmm. Those administrators don't know what it's like to have to deal day in and day out with the problems that patients come in with and be told that you have only 15 minutes to see this patient and that you've got to keep up your charts and you're falling behind and you're going to be in all of these different things and they're telling us those things they don't know what it's like. Then on the other hand administrators are saying, those doctors just do not understand fiscal responsibility. We're not here trying to make a lot of money. We're just trying to survive financially. And the only way we can do that is if they do their part. We cannot cater to them all the time. So that's what's happening. And people are talking that way in their own little rooms instead Mm -hmm. of meeting together and saying, number one, what is our common mission? And it can't just be the bottom line, and it can't just be to make money, and it also can't just be the answer, patients first, patients first. You can't do that. You have to say, what do we really want to accomplish? Who do we want to be as an institution? Who do we want not only our patients to know us as, but who do we want our doctors, nurses, MAs, everyone else to really be able to say, this is who we are? And until you work with an administrator who really wants to, and I have, I've worked with administrators before, usually small scale, mm-hmm. where they will, if, you know, if we have a disagreement, you know, one of them would come to me after we the meeting and say, Joe, I noticed that you were saying that if we change that policy, that it could impact patient care. Can you tell me more about that? Because I want to understand exactly what you mean because I want to be on the same page here. We're on the same team. Mm -hmm. And he listened to what I had to say. And it turned out I had misinterpreted everything that he had said. He said, Mm -hmm. well, let me explain to you how Medicaid works and how insurance works. And he kind of explained it to me. And he wasn't talking down to me. Mm -hmm. He was saying, we can actually make this a win-win situation for the patients that you want to help. So I think when you're on the same team and you're working together, that's important. It's also important just to realize that as human beings, we all only have a certain capacity for work. Mm -hmm. And I think this, so as an institution, you have to realize we need to decrease the workload. It's too complex. What's reasonable? Engage the providers. They will tell you what's reasonable. They're not trying to get away with something. They're not trying to sneak out. They have sacrificed a lot to get where, they're, where they are. where They're not trying to get away with something. Mm-hmm. So listen to them. They can tell you how they can be the best doctor possible. And if you can incorporate that into policy, they become engaged. They feel like we're on the same page because that's the biggest thing now. We're not having a common mission together and we're not feeling valued. But you can go a long way as an administrator if you say, let me hang out with you in your office, in your clinic. Let me see what it's like. And you can can teach me what it's like to be in your shoes. I want to know about that Mm -hmm. because I really care and value you. You're my greatest asset that that we have here. You think about somebody at Microsoft or at Amazon who is their top data analyst, they're going to make sure that that person doesn't quit and go somewhere else. They're going to do everything they can to retain that person. So this type of attitude, setting that awareness, the culture organizationally of wellness. So if the COO, CEO, CMO, if they aren't taking care of themselves and they feel like they should be self-sacrificing constantly, then everyone else thinks they have to fall in line. But if there's a culture of wellness, then people will say, wow, it's okay to speak up. It's okay to ask for help. That's another thing. The other thing is how can you give as much autonomy and flexibility to doctors? They know their capacity. They know what works best for them. If you just listen and don't say you have to do it this way, but add a little bit of flexibility, I'm telling you, you throw us a bone, and we will <laughs> run into war with you. you know if we think that you value us and that we're on a common mission, we'll work hard. But we have to feel valued, and we have to feel like if we need help, we can ask for it, and it will be valued. It will be looked on as a courageous act to ask for help mm-hmm. instead of a sign of weakness because it is. you take a big risk, so people coming for help. It takes a lot of courage. And as a result, it's the first step in making things better as an organization and as a physician.
0: So in your case, for the services you provide, who initiates that process? Is it often the individual who comes to you first? Or like, do you find you're outreaching more to organizations? Or do they reach out to you? Are they showing the initiative? because um i can't help but feel and I, it's probably because i am a provider that i would be more inclined to reach out rather than the organization <laughs> but that's i don't know right.
1: that's true so i would say the majority the majority of my individual coaching clients come to me on their own okay uh however i have reached out to many organizations and some of them will invite me in to do workshops or a keynote keynote uh address on finding joy in your practice I've worked with a couple of organizations to try to institute some of these changes that don't cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, just paying attention and valuing people doesn't cost a lot of money. So I've helped some organizations institute some simple changes that uh, that can help. But what I would love to see, and some organizations are starting to do this, is to have organization sponsor coaching. And coaching is a chance for you as a physician to sit down with me or anyone else as a coach, really look back at those values and really look at where you are now compared to where you would like to be and what makes sense for you for your life in and out of work. And what is the pathway to getting there? And if the organizations can sponsor that, talk about feeling valued, that means that they want you to be a happy employee and they want the best for their patients. So for me, from that perspective, compared to the $500,000 to $2 million it costs to replace a physician, I think it's well worth the investment.
0: I cannot agree more. I just think it's a more proactive approach. Uh, one of the things that I've advocated for on this podcast is having on-site coaching in just having that service available to whomever, whether it's at the frontline level, whether it's at the executive level, having it, you know, on hand because it's tough, right? And we all need support at some point. And sometimes when we're in it, we try to be that support for others, our coworkers, for example, our teammates, but we're in it too. So we're not, we're not seeing it all so clearly either. So it helps to have somebody else step in who's not so directly involved in the processes or in the care to uh, just be that person to go to, right? That sees things objectively. So tell me, Joe, you've been in your clinical practice for 35 years, right? And mm-hmm. it's kind of unheard of, truthfully, to <laughs> I've chatted with you and one other physician who's, um I think he was in practice for over 40 years. So just a little bit more than you. What has kept you in this profession for so long?
1: Well, now I do not work full time. I will tell you that. I, I figured been- that. <laughs> That's been a huge, I, I would say a couple of things have sustained me. One is I've moved, I've moved jobs. Yeah. And again, sometimes it's external circumstances um, and because another opportunity arises. Uh, sometimes it's been from my own initiative that I wanted something different. So I would say one thing that's sustained me is I think unconsciously <laughs> I have left positions that I thought were not good fits and I've moved toward positions that were good fits. And I say unconsciously because as I look back, in retrospect, I go, oh, that's why I was so happy there. Oh, that's why I was so happy there. So as a coach, I'm trying to get people to proactively actually know what they're looking for from the beginning. And that's really helpful. So I think for me, it's been being able to change things up To discover things, follow my passion, not be afraid to make changes, and also to work part time when I think that it's important for me to work part time.
0: Yeah, and taking that step back for your own well being. Yeah. Yeah. And to do other things that also interest you, right? And you're still contributing overall to patient care, you're still contributing overall to the profession uh, as an entity, too. When you said leaving and going somewhere else, one of the things I I try to uh, encourage on this podcast too, for other providers, is to move toward what aligns with you as opposed to leaving something that doesn't, right? And focusing on, you know, leaving, leaving without knowing, you know, where you're going or so can you talk a little bit more about that is just directing yourself towards what you want as opposed to what you don't want?
1: I would love to. I think it's great. I think People, I don't know who the first person to say this was, but it's kind of like it is a much better task to run towards something than run away from something. Or if you know what you're running away from, please know what you're running toward, right?
0: Yeah, love that. And
1: I would say this about that. I think that that's really helpful. I would also say this. I know for myself at, at least one time in my life, I was running away from something that was a lot of pain and suffering. And what I was running toward was my mental health. So I really was running toward something, and even though it was getting away from where I was, I was running toward a plan and a goal to try to become healthier, and to seek out and discern what my next step is going to be. So the one thing I would say is there are people who are at the extreme, and I was, and I think many of us are at this point, that running away could mean running toward a break, Mm -hmm. a mental health break, something that will lead to something different and not just return to the same thing. But I think if you're able to get the help that you need, the support that you need, you know, I tell you, the the main principle about coaching is you, as the client, have the resources and the knowledge already of knowing what you are passionate about and what works for you. All you need is somebody to accompany you, ask the right questions, give you a few exercises to go through. And then you can define exactly what you want to run toward.
0: Love that. Yeah, it's just been so suppressed, in essence, from just showing up each and every day and just plugging away like you were doing before you burned out, essentially. One last question for you. Um, I saw on your website, I think it was under your blogs, I saw this interesting header, post-traumatic stress i think and post traumatic growth and i thought hmm <laughs> i didn't open it because i wanted to ask you about it so could you tell me about post traumatic growth a little bit
1: certainly this came from the uh, the AMA the AMA has a wonderful website and program that's online with all kinds of tools for for both organizations and individual physicians called steps forward and they just conducted this huge study, a survey of physicians and all healthcare workers, not only physicians, but nurses and support staff and everyone who's in the hospital and clinics to try to discover, you know, what's the rate of burnout, what do they want, you know, all these different things. And they've really defined uh, several categories that organizations can, the steps that they can take to try to support physicians and other healthcare providers. But the other thing that they concluded was that After any type of natural disaster, and this pandemic has been a global disaster, that you can emerge from that being totally traumatized and unable to function anymore, or you can use that time afterwards to kind of look back and say, what is it that we've experienced what is it that this has exposed in our country the united states especially what has this exposed about our healthcare system about racism about our politics and about the way that we treat each other now let's take that those lessons learned and grow from that let's transform our healthcare system let's transform ourselves in the way that we approach how we live our lives, what we value, who we want to spend our time with. Because I can tell you personally, I have lost several people during this pandemic and it hasn't been just to COVID. Mm. It has been to, for many other reasons. So I think that idea of post-chromatic growth is learning our lessons and moving in a different direction and not just going back to the way things were.
0: I love that. And I'm so sorry for your losses. I know a lot of people um, have experienced loss either directly or indirectly. Like I'm just hearing, like if I read a Twitter feed about somebody who's lost someone, it just, it gets me. And I think we're all so hypersensitive now that it doesn't have to be um, necessarily someone in our direct circle anymore. We're just feeling everybody's pain. So I'm so sorry, but I do love the concept of post-traumatic growth. And I think this is uh, a learning moment, really, for all of us in healthcare to, like you said, closely examine things that were we were already um, struggling with, that were challenging, that have now posed as, you know, they're just staring us right in the face, right? And we we just, all we can do is improve them. And I think if we all agree on that, and we, we move toward that, I think we'll start to heal and uh, hopefully uh, reform healthcare delivery and and improve it for our patients overall. So, yes. where where can people connect with you, Joe? Because I'm sure they'll want to
1: reach out. Yeah. So, um, my website is uh, JoeShermanMD.com. So, www.joeshermanmd.com. and you can email me directly at Joe at JoeShermanMD.com. I also have a LinkedIn page, and that's also you can reach by Joe Sherman MD.
0: Okay. And your LinkedIn is your only social page.
1: Yes. Right now that's it. Okay, I'm, I'm uh, that, that's working
0: okay. on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all good. <laughs> it's all good. I, uh,
1: I have to learn my boundaries too.
0: Absolutely. And I have to say, I love your website. Thank I love you. what you've done with it and it's a great resource. So even just, I really encourage people just going to your website and checking it out.
1: Great.
0: Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time and your presence.
1: Thank um, you, Jennifer. I
0: appreciate it. Yes. Awesome. Thanks so much. Okay, you take care. All right. Bye-bye.